This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Across America today, gated communities sprawl out from urban centers, employers enforce mandatory drug testing, and schools screen students with metal detectors. How and when did our everyday world become dominated by fear, every citizen treated as a potential criminal? In his new book, Governing Through Crime, our guest today, Jonathan Simon, traces this pattern back to the 1960s when politicians redefined the ideal citizen as a crime victim— one whose vulnerabilities open the door to overweening government intervention. Simon is Associate Dean of Jurisprudence and Social Policy and Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. Jonathan Simon, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. How are you today? I'm very well. Right, now, what's it like up in Berkeley today? Is it nice? You know, and it's a classic uh, early spring day, really sunny, but a little bit of a crispness in the air. Oh, excellent. Excellent. I love it up there. Well, likewise, and I, I, I've enjoyed my many times down in Irvine. I think it's a great campus, great great community. Well, thank you. We, we feel the same way about it. <laughs> now, uh, you say governing through crime began in the 1960s. Is there a defining moment? Is there a point in time it really made a turn? I think so. Uh, of course, there's always an illusion in drawing a line that says something begins here. And uh, as some historians have already pointed out to me, uh, you can find very sort of powerful episodes of governing through crime, if you will, at many earlier stages of American history, uh, which are worth visiting and which I at least nod toward. And I have some interest in the book in, in the New Deal as well, at a time when we had a kind of proto-war on crime that didn't really go too far. But the war on crime that we've had since the 60s has been different than anything that's come before, both in its scale and its claim on sort of vast areas of social life. And I see that as really beginning, even though it took a long time to sort of gained steam uh, in 1968, a year that we now celebrate the 40th anniversary of. Is there one particular, uh, is there, was there a law that was passed by Congress that sort of really uh, crystallized this idea? Or, or? Oh, yes, well, I, 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 I'm fond of referring to the, uh, the already ominous-sounding uh, Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, uh, as sort of the mother of all crime legislation, at least modern crime legislation. Actually, when you go back and look at it now, it seems rather different than uh, many of uh, much of the content, of, if you will, of, of contemporary state and federal crime legislation. For instance, there's not a lot, lot about prison sentences in there, which has become sort of the meat and potatoes of the war on crime in, in more recent decades. But what there is there is is this recasting of the American public as essentially vulnerable victims, and an increasing role for the federal government, at that stage mainly in, in kind of improving the reach, the reach and, and, and power of, of state and local government uh, through a lot of uh, great society-style federal spending, but increasingly with a kind of edge defining certain groups of people as uh, really uh, suspects and enemies, including in that very volatile year, rioters, uh, which were sort of the... Uh, the, the crime fear de jure of that day, just as say terrorism is for ours. Is is that is this was this bill passage? Was this a, a reaction to outside events, sort of political and social movements? Was it was there anything about that 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 time where crime was demonstrably going up that people were genuinely in 
more uh, risk, or 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 is it a combination of that and some social right. movements that were going on? I think very much the combination. I mean, I think it's it, it's tempting to either assume. Um, that the crime fear was a very sensible and transparent response to what most criminologists now agree was a very rapid increase in, in rates of, of violent crime like uh, homicides and, and armed robberies so, uh, on the one hand, or to assume that it, it is a kind of political switch, of, you know, sleight of hand in which the, that highly charged political year uh, ended up not being a victory for uh, civil rights or for the anti-war movement, but instead for uh, a president, Richard Nixon, who made law and order his platform. I think the truth lies in between. Uh, it, the crime had become a very you know, volatile and salient feature of, of, of American life, and one that was magnified greatly by events like assassinations, uh, which two of which in that year included Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, which were, after all, you know, shootings that took place in the center of American cities. So they kind of magnified the image of urban crime that was already starting, the riots. Uh, there's a lot of reality to that. Uh, at the same time, there's an extraordinary political crisis, uh, one that, you know, nobody who knows the history of that era needs reminding of, but but what is less visible and what I try to bring out in the book is, is, is how difficult it was for the leading politicians of that era to sort of find a new ground on which to build legitimacy and support for the government. It was an era of an awful lot of optimism and hope at the beginning, but by 68, most of the things that we now think of as, as possible directions of change, including the environment, uh, civil rights, had become extremely obstructed by powerful interest groups. Yeah. I want to ask uh, Jonathan Simon. We're, we're speaking with Jonathan Simon. The book is "Governing Through Crime." I want to ask if, if you're in your experience, um, has there ever been a definitive study on on the impact of returning vets from Vietnam on the increase in uh, violent crime in America? As you may may know, I blogged on that recently, just okay. reflecting on some of the recent reporting on uh, Iraq right. war veterans and crime. I'm not aware. I think that most of the um, criminologists that have tried to look at macro data and uh, uh, have have not uh, have concluded basically that it's not a strong predictor uh, that the you know if you if you if you build into your you know attempt to model the the, the crime and imprisonment rate relationship, for instance, the the number of soldiers being discharged per year doesn't seem to carry a strong load value, but I'm not convinced that that kind of very macro-level uh, data analysis can fully get at the dynamic that that kind of uh, veteran situation may have brought about, especially because of the, uh, you know, the enormous alienation and uh, isolation that, that many veterans of that generation, and I'm, I'm afraid we may be replicating that today, uh, ha- have experienced. Well, I, I think any time you take, and I know that in the Iraq uh, war, we've had over, a, I think it's at least a million, correct me if I'm wrong, a million um, soldiers have cycled through Iraq at one point, and in Vietnam it had to be in a couple of million range. I can't imagine that you could introduce a significant portion of the American population to extended periods of violent behavior and not come back and see an increase in spousal abuse and alcoholism, which inevitably leads to, um, not always, but certainly a contributing factor in 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 crime, in criminal behavior. Addictive behavior becomes eventually becomes many times becomes criminal behavior. And I think there's a lot to that. Yeah. I, I'm and just, you know, the other side of it may be that our sense of trauma right. uh, as a 
culture and and as individuals and families that uh, that absorbed uh, these terrible experiences through the, the the largely men but some women that returned from Vietnam may well have helped to to concretize this sense of victimhood that right. uh, violence uh, you know it's a very curious thing uh, when you start looking at the relationship between crime and trauma and punishment uh, we recently we've had a terrible you know run of homicides up here in the Bay Area right. seven this last weekend in Oakland uh, yeah. And uh, if you look at some of these neighborhoods, uh, it, it's hard to tell whether there's more trauma being caused by the homicides, by the number of people being sent to prison, right. um, by the response of the schools and the community to kind of gate things and lock down. I mean, it, it begins to reproduce itself in such a tight cycle that it's almost hard to assign blame. Well, and that, and that leads me to the next point in all of this, which is when you have this sort of uh, criminal behavior, I mean, there's a, sort of these spikes it gives the political leadership in this country, and it goes back to your point of the, the 60s. There was a period of time, because of these these violent criminals, going, or the, these sort of predatory criminals, there was a lot of talk about super criminals and all, uh, that they, then gives them a lot of political leverage to call for more laws regarding crime and punishment, which then cycles into this whole, uh, this whole fear factor, this fear culture. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't see it more strongly than right here in California, right. where on the one hand we have this incredible budget deficit coming up, or, you know, starting now, that's, you know, going to swallow up a huge amount of, of any hope of trying to improve education or some of other major agendas. We have enormous infrastructure vulnerabilities that we haven't begun to address in terms of fire and climate change, etc. And yet, and on top of that, we have a you know, massive prison population crisis, and notwithstanding that background, we have, you know, lots of legislators and the governor periodically, um, you know, focusing on uh, tough-on-crime rhetoric and law. I mean, we'll probably this November be looking at a couple of nasty uh, pieces of uh, ballot initiative aimed at sending even more people to prison, you know, at a moment when y- you would think if there was any chance of legislators sort of weaning themselves from their dependence on this issue, there's so much else for them to do and, and so many palpable needs that Californians have. I, I, I myself am a little bit amazed at the staying power of crime in that regard. But do you think it's a matter of of legislators just being lazy, or are they just? Is it easy to manipulate the public through fear? Uh, I, why are we not getting inspirational leaders? Well, why are, why is this <laughs> problem persisting? You know, we're looking back to 1968 in the omnibus, the uh, omnibus Safe Streets and Crime Control Act, yeah. and here it is, uh, 50 years almost later, and and we're still falling for the same. Uh, Sorry line from our politicians. Fear. No, it's true. I mean, it, I, I don't see them so much as um, manipulators. Uh, I see them more as kind of entrepreneurs that are trying to figure out what, what they can sell us that we want to buy that won't cost them too much to, to <laughs> bring to market. And, and the pro- if you think about all the other needs that we have, they're very complicated, and there's a lot of powerful interest groups on, on every side of them. And so uh, uh, it's very hard to make progress on those. And then if you add into that mix term limits, which mean that you have a very short span of time as a politician in California and other states to make your mark in the assembly and try to get to some statewide office. Uh, crime is going to, I think, dominate that because, you know, the ACLU and a handful of, of community groups concerned about over-incarceration, you know, do not weigh compared to the teachers' union, the, guard, the correctional officers' union, the, uh, the, the commercial interests in the state, etc. Well, you just brought up something that... In my estimation, having experienced this firsthand, the prison guards uh, in this state have an incredible amount of political power, um, and I saw that when I was working on the uh, 
uh, the amendment to the three strikes law of Prop 66 back in mm-hmm. 2004 and how easy it was for us to go from a 60-40 lead in the polls just 10 days out to a, to a three-point loss in the polls 10 days later because Arnold Schwarzenegger sold us uh, what I consider a bag of lies on regarding what the effect of that law was going to be. But it was easy to see a 15 to 20 point shift in public opinion based on fear. Absolutely. And I, in a the week. union uh, here is a fascinating entity. And, yeah. uh, but I would point out that I, you know, I don't think I think their power it comes from having rowed in the right direction with the current and, and having some very entrepreneurial leaders back in the late 70s that saw the way the public's uh, and the political framework was setting around crime and began to position themselves as you know, public interested uh, advocates uh, behind victims groups and things of that nature. I don't think that they could have done it on their own. And if you look across the country, there's lots of states that have extremely weak uh, correctional officer unions where, you know, you get paid little more than a janitor gets compared to, you know, California, where due to the strength of the union, the correctional officers are paid, you know, quite, quite high. And they have coffers to uh, influence the political process. So they are important. They're also a factor to watch now as we move toward uh, hopefully some kind of greater crisis that will produce some pressure to change around the California prison population, because uh, from the uh, officers I've been talking to and some of their union leaders, I think they're, they're recognizing the, the, the kind of limits of, you know, growth as something good for them, because our prisons are so, so overcrowded right now and understaffed and dangerous and miserable that, um, that I think we, we, we may actually have their support for trying to get away from this model. Well, it's taken, the prisons are now at 200% and above right. capacity, and uh, we're spending, you know, as far as line item budgets, uh, line item uh, on our budget, state budget, it's, I think, second now in terms of the amount of money that we spend uh, per year in our budget, uh, in terms of just that one, per, I know education, and then I think prisons now. Right, K through twelve, and it looms over higher education. And I always like to show my students because I started yeah. as a freshman at the University of California back in '77. That uh, in that around that year, uh, the state was spending almost twenty percent of its general fund on higher education and only about five percent on prisons. Hmm. Well, I, the statistic that I like to use is in the last twenty years. We've built 21 prisons in one university in the state. So, yeah. so it, it just uh, why is it? Let's go to something very basic. And by the way, I want to remind our listeners: we're speaking with Jonathan Simon, governing through crime, how the war on crime transformed American democracy and created a culture of fear. Let's go to something very basic. What is it about America, the safest country in terms of geography and military might and economic wealth? Uh, uh, generally speaking, the the, the pinnacle of where you'd want to live in the world. What is it about us that makes us so receptive to this idea of being fearful, to being afraid of so many things? What is it about us? Well, you know, it's, it's a very important question, one that I don't claim any great expertise in. I mean, in the book, in some ways, is more an attempt to describe what happened as we move down this cascade. I think part of it clearly lies, you know, in, in one of our strengths, which is that we're a very diverse and have always been a fairly multicultural society, and it's, it's rather hard in, in this country to sort of mobilize around a, a, a highly solidaristic sense of, uh, of the nation as a particular ethnic community or religion, uh, not to say that there hasn't been dominance and hegemony, but the, the rhetoric of American unity has tended to be around 
uh, either fear or raw opportunity. And, you know, I, between the two, I prefer opportunity for sure. But uh, I see the power of fear. And uh, as you know, in, in the book, uh, you know, I urge us uh, not just to, uh, to advocate hope as opposed to fear, as, uh, as Mr. Obama uh, would suggest, although I like that idea, but also to think of, of the range of different things that we might have to be afraid of in the culture. It seems to me uh, Crime as a fear has uh, 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 very pernicious consequences for how we address other very real risks, and uh, it, it may be uh, that the breakthrough we're going to get is not so much a political leader that will come along and you know uh, begin to back off of uh, directly of some of the insanity around crime, but will who hopefully mobilize the country to address some of these you know extraordinary vulnerabilities. I and mean, I think we had a moment kind of like that around Katrina, uh, and it didn't quite go far enough, partly because crime reared its head as a largely imaginary problem right. uh, on the streets there and distracted the country from what was happening. But I think people walked away from that deeply unsettled about how vulnerable we are, not to stranger danger, but to our own collective ignorance and, and unwillingness to invest in our, our, our needs. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I just Sorry. I keep coming back to this, and I, I I'm sort of I've been dancing around this idea because going back to '68 and the omnibus crime bill, um, at at a, at a time when civil rights and, and you know, all these different things, and I really civil rights for me, knowing I've been around politics a long time, and there's there's always there's always a hint of race, or almost always a hint of race in so many of our political issues, and I can't help but think the year. Of the assassination of Martin Luther King and some real major strides in civil rights for this country, for uh, African Americans, Co- along comes the increasing chorus of politicians, congressmen, and senators talking about the the this tidal wave of crime sweeping over America, which didn't really happen that way. How much? How much of this is about it, the, the a sort of a, a backdoor way of calling? Right race into the into the question here well this is a huge sprawling issue and i've i've often reflected on the fact that i i almost could have called the book governing through race you know yeah. how the war on crime transformed america because race and crime have been like twins in the american experience in terms of how they're problematized and going back to your earlier point about sort of american fear i mean i think a big part of that is essentially an experience of whiteness uh, in the new world and in a world populated by slaves that were brought over by Europeans. That experience of the kind of white community in the fearful wilderness um, and the identity then with law enforcement and, and kind of organized violence as, as tools of survival, I think, have had an important trajectory that's been through us uh, throughout our whole history. But I do think a crucial question is what to make of the intensification of both race and crime in 68. And um, I argue in the book that it's, it's, it's better to see it as a bizarre kind of hybridization of a civil rights mentality, perhaps losing its, you know, uh, aspiration for uh, for achieving a higher level of social justice and at the same time a gathering backlash uh, uh, on the right as it were and that's what you I think you see yeah. in that 68 bill is this kind of melange of a LBJ style great society uh, sort of welfareist strategy and and partly saying look you know if we're going to continue to uplift um, African Americans and other uh, minorities in our large cities we've got to take on crime we've got to 
repudiate the, 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 the kind of stigma that's associated with cities and crime and, and show America that we can you know, effectively govern these cities in a democratic way. But to do that, we're going to have to ratchet up law enforcement. That's the liberal voice. The conservative voice is saying, you know, we, we need to reimpose clear deterrent signals by, by, by increasing police coercion, basically, and then later prison sentences. We, we tend to focus on, on the war on crime as if it was a right-wing agenda, and I think that that, or an anti-civil rights agenda, and I think it misses how much those mm-hmm. two get interlocked together in a way that's had devastating consequences uh, for race in America. Well, Jonathan Simon, I, I remember when uh, Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he said, this will mean that, that we, the, we, meaning the Democrats, will lose the South. And he was absolutely right. And I can't help but think that there's there's a sort of political plague that goes on here, that this was an attempt when Nixon came into office to essentially placate uh, the South by giving – I know what you're saying, and I, I don't want to get too far into this because it's a, it's a, it's a long and, and involved discussion. Uh, I know that uh, economic factors play into, uh, into uh, crime, and all, there are other factors here. But I just when we get to sentencing and we, we see what happens when when somebody's black who's been been convicted and where they end up as opposed to a white man, you, race is obviously a big part of this. Um, but there's more to it. Well, you know, it's a, it is a fascinating and, and important uh, issue and, and 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 much worth worth pursuing. I mean, I think yeah. one one way to think about it that I try to frame it is if you think that the governing through crime and the war on crime are you know. A, deeply necessitated or motivated by essentially a, an effort to maintain white supremacy or white domination in America, uh, from a normative point of view, it's pretty depressing, because it's kind of hard to imagine that, um, you know, if we're that locked into that now, that that is going to change in a big way um, if the civil rights movement itself and, and the general cultural change in America hasn't changed much. That would be really depressing. I mean, it, it would seem like we're really not going to make much progress. I, I tend to think a little bit more optimistically that, at least at this moment, our, our criminal justice system and our war on crime are so racist that in their effects that they've actually they're, they're now not reflective of an underlying level of racism in America, but they're actually so much beyond that that there's considerable room for mobilizing you know your average white suburban voter to actually be pretty disgusted. I mean, a, a case so, in point again is the California prison system. I mean. Yeah. Voters in the state have said they don't want the state to consider race in, in things like education or contracting in Prop 209. Well, you walk into a California prison, the first thing you see is race everywhere you look. And I don't think many Californians have been encouraged to, to see that. Well, how do we get the, the population of the prisons down, for one thing? I mean, is it, is it a matter of, of legislation, or is it a matter of, of sentencing? How do we go about it? Well, it, you know, this is a huge, huge complicated question, but it's, I, I think... We're not going to get it um, in in a strong form of of, of legislation. Um, what I think is is more promising is um, is trying to actually get counties to 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 step up and play a more uh, direct role in in um, in keeping uh, convicted uh, folks down in the community, either in jail for some periods of times or or in the community. We've seen that actually happen with the juvenile prisons in California. It's a striking and I think hopeful possible example. In the in the mid-90s, the juvenile prisons in the state had reached all new population highs. They had been going straight up, just like the adult prison population. And then there was a series of scandals involving violent abuse of the prisoners in there that, that sort of so shocked the conscience of, of some of our county-level justice officials uh, uh, that, that 
even though there was no legislation at that point really changing things, they actually stepped up and started just ceasing to send many uh, youth offenders uh, to the prison system. We're now down to something like a quarter of the peak prison population, and now legislation has come along to, to kind of keep it that low and to even bring it to lower levels. And I think how to get to that kind of a solution at the adult level is going to be tricky, but it would involve finding a way to, you know, to give counties the resources that are locked up now in prison. I, mean, I think that's one of the weirdest and most destructive aspects of the war on crime, because crime is essentially a local phenomenon. Its reality is almost always experienced at the local level in its real effects. Now, it's, it's spread imaginarily through television and other things, but it's a local phenomenon. And you actually can get develop the best strategies to repress it when you actually act on it at the local level through police, through probation, even through jail when necessary. What we've tended to do over the last, since that 68 law, is basically move control over uh, the criminal strategy, criminal justice strategy, up the political pike to the state level, to the federal level. Uh, and I think what if we could find a way to to unlock those resources that are, we've just been talking about are huge. Give counties, say, the opportunity to take the money that they're currently, that the state is currently spending on their behalf, locking up felons in the, in the state prison system, and essentially be able to take that money and move it into their own county operations if they'll keep their felons at home. Well, this is a fascinating, fascinating discussion. I honestly could spend another hour talking to you about this, uh, and I'm sure that Nathan would say the same thing. It, this is a, a terrific book, and uh, I want to thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is cover- Governing Through Crime, How the War on Crime Transformed American Democracy and Created a Culture of Fear. Jonathan Simon, thank you. Well, thank you for the discussion. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.